well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm so glad you're with us on the program today. we got a busy one for you. You know, it is the last show of the week, so we're going to do a double duty. we got a couple of different stories to uh, chat about. Michael Graham going to join us here in just a moment or two. He's the managing editor at New Hampshire Journal. Uh, we'll talk about Maggie Hassan, the uh, senator from New Hampshire, Democratic senator from New Hampshire, who uh, earlier this week was uh, apparently on the fence about the nomination of David Chipman as permanent director of the uh, ATF, but has since landed. She's come off of the fence and she has landed uh, squarely on the side of anti-gun activists, which is not necessarily shocking, but could pose some problems for her in her uh, re-election campaign next year. We'll also we'll be taking a look at what is going on in the Supreme Court, where the uh, first round of court briefings are in. More are on the way in the case New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, this formerly known as New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett. This is the case that the Supreme Court's going to be taking over the fall, dealing with New York's subjective may-issue carry laws that uh, require you to demonstrate that you're special. You're different, that you somehow have a need elevated above that of the average citizen in order for you to exercise your constitutional right to bear arms. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know a lot of gun owners are, are eagerly anticipating the uh, court taking up this case, which I really don't think would have happened were it not for uh, President Trump uh, making these nominations, uh, putting you know folks like Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch on the bench. I... I, I if Democrats were in charge of uh, controlling the court and appointing nominees over the last four years, we'd have a very, very different Supreme Court, uh, and gun owners would likely be shying away from a uh, Supreme Court fight rather than uh, eagerly anticipating one. All of which is to say, do you miss President Trump? Because a lot of people do. And I'm coming to you with a very special offer that you do not want to miss. Now is your chance to win one of six signed photos of President Trump, hand-signed by President Trump, and soon one could be hanging up in your house. When President Trump signed these photos, he wanted to make sure that all of his supporters had the chance to receive one, and now is your chance. All you have to do is text CAM to 55404 today for your chance to win a beautiful photo of President Donald Trump, First Lady Melania Trump, hand-signed by President Trump himself by texting CAM Two five five four zero four. Right now, you'll actually get exclusive double entry activation for a limited time. Again, text CAM. That's C A M. In case you need to know, CAM two five five four zero four to have your name entered twice to win a hand signed Trump photo. You don't want to miss this contest. In soon, paid for by the National Republican Senatorial Committee. So let's turn our attention. Speaking of senators, let's turn our attention to uh, one of the Democratic senators uh, from New Hampshire. Uh, one of four uh, red state Democrats that Politico had said was still undecided uh, about what to do with the nomination of gun control activist and former ATF agent David Chipman to head up the nomination or to head up the agency uh, where he once served uh, in the uh, in the department. John Tester, Montana, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Angus King of Maine, who is an independent of caucuses with Democrats and Maggie Hassan were the four Democrats that Politico mentioned. Apparently now there are three who are publicly undecided because New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan says that she is, yes, going to support the nomination of David Chipman. We had a chance to uh, talk about it with Michael Graham of New Hampshire Journal. Take a look and a listen. Michael, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. It's good talking with you today. I got to tell you, this is as close to that beard as I want to get. You know, I gotta be honest, it frightens me. It absolutely Just, frightens me. 
Just for that, I'm going to drive up to New England just to say uh, <laughs> hi in person. Go, Give me a big I old surrender. hug. Just rub it right all over your face there. You know, I actually am kind of uh, interested in uh, going up to uh, to you spend some time up. in New England. I, I I would love to, honestly. The, face uh, of the U.S. Senate could very well hang in the little purple state of New Hampshire. Exactly. I don't know if Chris Sununu wants me uh, up there on the stump right now, <laughs> but uh, I will say, I mean, I think the Second Amendment is going to be a big issue uh, in next year's uh, Senate campaign in the state. Maggie Hassan uh, coming out and endorsing uh, David Chipman as director of the ATF. Were, were you surprised to see this, Michael? I, I'm no longer surprised by Senator Hassan. I don't mean that in a negative way. I just don't understand what she's doing. Because on the one hand, she's broken with the party on occasion. For example, during the, uh, remember that Votorama they did for the last reconciliation? There was a proposal to give the COVID relief checks to illegal immigrants. And she was one of eight Democrats who broke with her party. But at the same time, when she was in the legislature in New Hampshire, she uh, opposed a ban on sanctuary cities. In other words, she fought to keep sanctuary cities in place. And again, when it came up in the U.S. Senate, she was there with it. And so she's all over the map. I thought, for example, there was no way that the HHS secretary, Javier, um, I'm spacing his last name. Becerra. Becerra, yeah. thank you. That she was going to vote for. I'm like, this guy's so extreme. He said so much crazy stuff. He wanted to force nuns to pay for birth control. She had no problem. She voted for him. And yet uh, she's part of the infrastructure moderation deal. And if it's, it's funny. We have a running gag at NHJournal.com about the number of times she sends out press releases with the word bipartisan in the headline. And it's like in one day she had four press releases that all had bipartisan in the headline. But she doesn't vote bipartisan. Her voting record like and I don't, by the way, I, neither does anyone else. In other words, is she bipartisan compared to people who vote 99 percent with the party? Yeah, because she votes 92 percent with the party. But. Um, so the Chipman thing on, on the first glance, you're like, no, just don't vote for that guy. Why, why give the second amendment community yet another reason to distrust you? They already distrust you because you're a Democrat. They already distrust you because you sound a lot like a progressive. A lot of the time, here's an easy one. This guy's not, you know, he's problematic. A lot of other people, Senator King next door name has a problem with him. You know, she didn't have to come on board and yet she jumped right in and it's, it's yet another thing like the H.R. 1, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the voting uh, takeover bill. She mm-hmm. could have easily just said, no, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Joe Manchin on this. I'm not doing that. She's 100% in. So it's, it's really a level of political schizophrenia. And as a guy who used to run campaigns for a living, whatever you think of the policy, good or bad, I don't get the strategy. That's, so that's why I was I surprised. I'm too confused to be surprised. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't really get the strategy either. I mean, she narrowly won uh, her last Senate campaign. And I, I do know. mean, well, it was about a thousand votes, right? Exactly. It was, I want to remember it was like a thousand fifty six. I think I'm, I may be off by one digit there. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's it's a, such a tiny sliver that the activists on the left who organize campus voting Every time they get a thousand and fifty, whatever that number is, new registered college students, they call it the Hassan. So it's like we got three Hassans at UNH last month. So that's so, how narrow the margin was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I know she's doing well in terms of her fundraising, but New Hampshire is a, a very Second Amendment friendly state. You all are a constitutional carry state. Right. Uh, and it seems to me like, you know, she has just invited uh, this now to be a, a primary issue uh, in her reelection campaign next year. And as well, it should be. And it is absolutely going to be. 
And uh, it's funny because I've been talking, we've got a piece coming out of NH Journal uh, later today about this uh, very issue. And when I talk to the gun advocates, the number of votes that she has that are problematic is relatively small because you know, part is because stuff just didn't come up that often. You know, mm-hmm. but she has a couple of votes. But it, my point is, she wasn't in a spot like, you know, Blumenthal in Connecticut where, you know, she's kind of there and you got to own it. She has lots of maneuvering room. This was an easy one. This isn't opposing the, you know, ban on uh, semiotic weapons that scare people, whatever they, whatever they call the, you know, the, the weapon. Uh, assault weapon <laughs> right. You know, this was one that you could, no one was going to say, oh my gosh, how could you not stand by Chipman? No one knows who the heck Chipman is. But yet she, uh, she embraced it uh, early, up front, and as far as I can tell, for no good reason. Yeah, again, talking with Michael Graham, managing editor at uh, New Hampshire Journal and uh, Inside Sources as well. Michael, listen, I do appreciate your insight. I know we're going to be paying very close attention to this race going forward, but uh, thank you very much for your time today, well, sir. You, uh, you have been writing about a piece in one of our Inside Sources uh, uh, products in, in Philadelphia, the Delaware Valley Journal. And one of the things I love to point out to people about New Hampshire, it has the third highest rate of gun ownership in the country. Third highest. It has the lowest homicide rate in the country. Now, sometimes it bumps from 50th to 49th. You know, it's kind of like, but it is always one of the lowest. And every time someone says to me, as the Biden administration is saying, guns are crime, which is, that's their strategy now to address crime. Because there's a crime problem. No one disputes a crime problem. But they don't want to deal with crimes, so they're going to deal with guns. Every time they say guns are crime, I just say two words, New Hampshire. Explain to me how so many people can own so many guns, and yet it is literally most years the safest place to be if you don't want to get killed, uh, unless you're married to my wife. It's not particularly safe at all. Fortunately, she does not own a gun. <laughs> We're going to leave it there before you put your foot in your mouth any deeper there, Michael. Michael Graham, thank you so much for coming on the program, sir. Let's do this again very soon, shall anytime, we? Anytime, anytime. All right. We will uh, see what happens here with the Chipman nomination. I obviously it would have been great if all four of these moderate Democrats said no. Uh, but Hassan, I think, is the one who is at least had the most history of supporting uh, gun control in the past. I think ultimately this is going to come down to Joe Manchin of West Virginia once again. I suspect if I if I had to place a bet today, uh, my bet would be that Angus King comes out and supports Chibbins nomination, even though his fellow senator from Maine, Susan Collins, moderate Republican, has come out and opposed Chibbins nomination. I also would bet, if I had to right now, that uh, Montana Senator John Tester uh, would also end up backing uh, Chibbins nomination. Tester, you know, portrays himself as a a pro-gun Democrat, but when push comes to shove, uh, he tends to align with the party. So we'll see what happens. But uh, again, if you are a gun owner in Maine, West Virginia, Montana, frankly, no matter where you live, uh, you should be contacting your senators and urging them to oppose the nomination of David Chibben. Now, let's turn our attention to our second big story today, and that is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. The uh, case of the Supreme Court is going to be taken up in the fall. We don't yet have a date uh, when oral arguments are going to be held. The Supreme Court did release a calendar of oral arguments for October and New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, not on the list. So it's probably going to be a little bit later on in the fall. Uh, but again, already the briefings are starting to come in. This is exciting if you're a Second Amendment legal geek 
You don't even have to be a Second Amendment attorney, just a just a legal geek, a legal aficionado, and you can be excited about this. So here it is. Uh, if we're in the Supreme Court of the United States, this is the petitioner's brief filed uh, just a couple of days ago by uh, Paul Clement, the uh, counsel of record for the plaintiffs. Uh, and the brief itself, again, this is the argument as to why New York's carry laws should be struck down. So let's take a look at some of their arguments here. Uh, first, Clement says New York's regime. Well, actually, this is not first. I'll I'll I'll, I'll read you how this actually uh, uh, begins here, and then we'll uh, go through a couple of the uh, highlights. But um, the summary uh, of this case actually starts with a recitation of the question that is posed: whether the state's denial of petitioners' applications for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violated the Second Amendment. Now, again, keep in mind, that's not the question that was originally posed to the court, but that's the question that the court decided to answer, which is a little bit narrower of a question than what was asked by the plaintiffs originally. State of New York also, by the way, had a different question that the court rejected as well. But the court is seems to be focused in on whether or not the denial of concealed carry licenses violated the Second Amendment rights. Of, of New Yorkers. And as this brief points out, look, there is no open carry uh, allowed in New York State. So getting a license is, in essence, the only way for New Yorkers to exercise their right to bear arms outside of the home. And as the uh, brief says, New York's regime is irreconcilable with the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. Note, by the way, that phrase, text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. One of the arguments that the court is really going to be dealing with beyond the issue of carry licensing in New York itself is what standard of review should be used when looking at the constitutionality of these gun control laws, because the court has largely been silent on that. You've got lower courts that have adopted this standard of intermediate scrutiny for the most part, which is this sort of vague, fuzzy middle ground, legally speaking, that, uh, you know, if, as long as the state has a good reason uh, for violating your rights, they, they can do so. They can get away with it. And uh, here you've got Paul Clement arguing, no, that's not the standard that should be used. Uh, and under the standard that should be used, New York's law is unconstitutional. The textual inquiry, he says, is not a close question, as the text guarantees a right to bear arms as well as keep them. And a right to bear arms only within the confines of a home offends both common sense and original public meaning. The historical inquiry is no closer and has already been answered in Heller. Founding-era cases, commentaries, and laws on both sides of the Atlantic, most of which were surveyed in Heller, confirmed that the founding generation understood the Second Amendment and its English predecessor to guarantee a right to carry common arms for self-defense. The American tradition of protecting that right remained virtually unbroken in the century and a half following ratification. Severe restrictions on the right to carry arms typically arose only in the context of efforts to disarm disfavored groups like blacks in the South and immigrants in the Northeast. Those outlined in discriminatory efforts only underscore the framers' wisdom in enshrining the right of all the people to keep and bear arms in our founding documents. So immediately, a broadside launched against New York Sullivan Act, which was put in place in 1911, and yes, really was designed to prevent immigrants to this country from being able to carry a firearm for self-defense. This was a discriminatory law on its face, more than 100 years ago. And I'm really glad to see Paul Clement bringing this to the forefront 
of his argument. He goes on, says, because text history and tradition confirm that the Second Amendment protects the right to carry common arms, like handguns for self-defense, the state cannot flatly prohibit law-abiding citizens like these petitioners from exercising that right. That was the lesson of Heller. Indeed, he says, Heller likened the District of Columbia's unconstitutional ban on possessing handguns inside the home to, quote, severe restrictions on carrying common arms outside the home. Like the district's regime in Heller, New York's regime effectively criminalizes the exercise of a fundamental constitutional right. Just as the district's extreme regime could not survive any meaningful form of scrutiny, neither can New York's effort to let only the few exercise a right that the Constitution secures to all. So one of the arguments that the state of New York is making is that, look, uh, you, you can go back and you can find laws restricting or even banning the concealed carry of firearms uh, back in the 1800s. Like, that wasn't unusual. So why, it is un- why is it unusual for us to have a law in the books that requires applicants to show good cause or a justifiable reason to carry a firearm and to have that approval signed off by a county sheriff or a judge? How is that unconstitutional? Look at what happened back in the 19th century. Well, Paul Clement takes these arguments on with a little history lesson of his own. And he points out that most of the courts that upheld those restrictions on concealed carry did so while acknowledging that individuals could openly carry a firearm. In fact, he said, quote, even courts that approved concealed carry laws reaffirmed the right to carry arms. They just found that the ability to carry openly sufficient was sufficient to protect it. Uh, and then he uh, uh, cites a, a case out of Alabama. Uh, in which the uh, uh, majority wrote, the legislature cannot inhibit these citizens from bearing arms openly because the Constitution authorizes him to bear them for the purposes of defending himself in the state. And it's only when carried openly that they can be efficiently used for self-defense. Now, that's from 1846, holding that a prohibition against bearing arms openly was in contact, uh, in conflict with the Constitution. Uh, he then points to uh, a Louisiana case from 1850, holding that restrictions on concealed carry were permissible only because Louisiana guaranteed every citizen's, quote, right to carry arms in full open view. Clement says, indeed, the only cases that cast doubt on the right to carry arms were later cases that relied on the mistaken premise that the Second Amendment and state analogs did not protect the individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. He continues with his history lesson uh, post-Civil War, saying the widespread agreement that the right protected a right to carry arms outside the home for self-defense continued into Reconstruction. Quote, as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly freed slaves, the newly liberated citizens faced waves of terror across the South, emboldened by ordinances prohibiting them from carrying arms for self-defense. For instance, he writes, an 1865 Mississippi ordinance, quote, that would serve as a model for the black codes of other Southern states, declared that, quote, no freedman, free Negro or mulatto, not in the military service of the United States government, and not licensed to do so by the board of police of his or her county, shall keep or carry firearms of any kind. Now, we don't have laws that are so explicitly race-based today, thankfully. However, The subjective may-issue laws are in place in states like New York do end up having a disproportionate impact on black Americans. For instance, uh, there was a survey that was recently done in North Carolina. 
taking a look not at uh, the issuing of concealed carry licenses, but the issuance of pistol purchase permits, because in North Carolina, this is another remnant of Jim Crow. In order for you to purchase a handgun, first you have to go to your local police chief or your sheriff and say, please, sir, can I buy a handgun? And again, you have to demonstrate your suitability. You may have to uh, uh, submit uh, character references. Uh, Even if you're not a prohibited person, if you've never been arrested before, county sheriff can say, I don't like the look of you, so you don't get to buy a handgun. And even though we now live in 2021 and the Jim Crow days are gone, the survey found that even today in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina, Wake County, which is one of the more, quote-unquote, progressive parts of the state, Black applicants are almost three times as likely to be denied their ability to purchase a handgun than white applicants. I'll be very curious to see as the uh, as amicus briefs uh, file in with the uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case, whether or not there is uh, any research done into the discriminatory impact of New York's May issue carry laws. Because I, I have to believe that, uh, again, white applicants in New York State, far more likely to be approved for a carry license, far more likely to be able to demonstrate good cause or justifiable need uh, to carry a firearm uh, than black applicants. Now, again, I, I don't have the evidence right there in front of me, but we've seen this with other gun control laws in other states, and I just have a feeling that uh, that is the case in the state of New York as well. So we're going to continue following this. There are a number of other briefs that have been filed, uh, uh, friend of court briefs that are already coming in. More are going to be coming in throughout the summer. Uh, and we'll be taking a periodic look at some of these and the arguments that uh, not just Paul Clement making on behalf of the plaintiffs, but uh, you know other outside groups uh, arguing. Uh, in favor of striking down New York's carry laws. And then, of course, the uh, the defenders of New York's carry laws are going to be weighing in as well over the course of the summer. So while the uh, oral argument is not going to take place for a few more months, the actual arguments over New York's carry laws are already underway at the Supreme Court. All right, now let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a uh, case out of Utah. And you can see the headline here, Parole Failure Leads to Death of Utah Handyman. This handyman was a guy named Melbourne Tony Martinez, and he was working at a home in West Valley City, Utah, in May of 2020, when he was shot and killed. Uh, and according to Channel 2 News in Utah, the uh, suspect in this case guy named uh, Jesus Adolfo Valdez Jr., who was living next door to the home, should not have been there. That There were failures on the part of the uh, probation and parole board there that, uh, quote, mischaracterized the parolee and allowed him to return to live with his parents, who did not follow the conditions of his parole agreement, uh, which they say led to the shooting. Uh, Martinez's mother-in-law said that he would still be alive if Utah parole agents had done their job and arrested Valdez Jr. after multiple parole violations. Channel 2 News investigated and says that uh, Martinez may not have been killed if it were not for a series of missteps by the Utah Department of Corrections, Adult Probation, and Parole. Okay, so what exactly happened here? The board granted parole to Valdez Jr. three separate times. Uh, The last time, shortly before the death of Martinez. 
Karen Mooseman, who is Martinez's mother-in-law, said we'd heard about the handyman on TV, but, you know, it didn't even dawn on us that it was him. Uh, a department whistleblower said it was a, quote, truly tragic story, a story that never should have taken place, saying that Valdez Jr. had a violent criminal past, and it should have been no surprise that uh, he would lash out again. Valdez Jr. had already spent several uh, uh, stints in prison uh, because of violent criminal episodes. The uh, whistleblower uh, said, quote, uh, Jesus had a history of threatening violent behavior. He's a violent, violent guy who never should have been let out of prison. Uh, Murray Police probable cause statement painted a portrait about the threats that he made to his ex-girlfriend. Uh, she had told Murray uh, Utah police officers that he had been repeatedly contacting her, making threats from restricted numbers. She said she would sometimes answer and, and ask him to stop contacting her, but he wouldn't listen. May 16, 2018, she told police that he called him again, threatening her, stating things like, I'm going to kill you and rape your dead body, you stupid. Yeah, I'm going to kill your family and rape your dad, he told her. Uh, the statement also indicates that he told her he was on his way to kill her and the boys, and he wanted to get shot by police. Now, Valdez ultimately was uh, taken into custody, um, but uh, it didn't last long. Uh, he was granted parole uh, on August, 9th, uh, August 20th, 2019. He was in prison from August 29th, 2018 to August 20th, 2019 on a conviction of criminal mischief and threats of violence, uh, not only from threatening his ex-girlfriend, but also a case where he choked his mom, assaulted his friend, made death threats, and uh, punched holes in the door of his parents' home. So he's already been convicted of violence against his own mother, right? And then they release him to his parents on parole, which seems weird to me to begin with. But according to uh, KUTV, family members or friends of inmates who have agreed to have the offender live with them fill out this form that asks uh, if the person will allow officers from the uh, probation and parole board to visit the residence during parole. So yes or no answer that's required. Also ask if anybody in the residence is a victim of the offender. Uh, Valdez Jr., yeah, he, he accosted his mom. Also ask if there are any firearms or dangerous weapons at the residence. For that question, a yes or no answer is required. And apparently... Um, those forms were not correctly filled out. When he was released on parole, he was specifically told not to have any contact with his mother without prior approval from adult probation and parole. Documents show that agents actually met with mom, checked the address, provided a walkthrough, and no issues were found. What well, issues should have been found? Because he's living with one of his victims. February 7th, 2020, uh, agents return to the home. They find alcohol in the home, which is another violation of his parole agreement. His mom was reminded about the no alcohol room, uh, rule rather. March 16th, uh, they visit the home again. They say that uh, they found no issues at that point. April 9th, they went back. Uh, he, couldn't, he wasn't there. Uh, May the 5th, uh, they went back and talked to him again 12 days later. They tried to find Valdez at home, but he wasn't there when they show up. Uh, May 28th, they were at Valdez's home. Agents uh, note, quote, he's doing very well. And then approximately four hours later, Tony Martinez was dead. Police found the uh, gun used in the shootings in Valdez's uh, father's truck. The um, dad says that's where he kept it, and it did belong to him. Uh, he was actually taken to the police station, was asked if he shot the handyman because it was his gun. Uh, he said no, uh, obviously. And then uh, Valdez Jr., uh, was uh, ultimately connected to the crime after Valdez Sr. admitted to uh, buying the gun from a pawn shop a couple of weeks earlier and taking his son out shooting, again, in violation of his probation and his parole.
So there are, I think, plenty of warning signs here. This isn't a case of a light sentence on the part of a judge. This is a case of a failure of a state agency to properly monitor uh, an individual under their care and supervision. And he never should have been released to his parents, given that he had already accosted his mom and had been convicted of that crime. He should have been returned to prison upon the first violation uh, of his probation. But none of that happened. Uh, And instead, a man is dead. And of course, now Valdez Jr. going to be spending a, a lot of time in prison as a result of that crime. All right, on to today's armed citizen story from uh, Scambia County, Florida, where sheriff's officials say a teenager acted in self-defense in a fatal shooting outside of a home. 60-year-old man was uh, shot and killed in Escambia County. Investigators say that the uh, teen shooter will not be charged at this time because they believe that this was a self-defense shooting. The state attorney's office is investigating uh, and will make the uh, final ruling uh, on this case, Escambia County Sheriff Chip Simmons says that the uh, 60-year-old man who was shot thought that a pair of young men were trespassing and yelled at them to leave, but one of them actually lived at the home in question. So they weren't. it wasn't a 60-year-old guy yelling, get off my lawn. It was, hey, get off that lawn. But one of the juveniles actually lived there, and apparently the two teens were getting ready to go fishing. Uh, at one point, Simmons says the man stuck his arm into uh, the car that these kids were in, grabbing the driver by the throat and then choking him. Uh, fearing for his life, Sheriff Simmons says the uh, teen shot the man. Neighbor says she saw it all unfold in the driveway of the home. Uh, she said she saw the man pull up to the house, blocking the driveway. She said he then went up to a car with young men and started arguing with them. Uh, the woman said he then pulled into the street only to run back to the car, screaming at them. She said, I was looking to see if he had something in his hands, uh, you know, for a weapon, and he didn't have anything in his hands, and he put the window down in the car, uh, and he had his arm in the car, and then I heard two shots. Um, Again, a a lot of details that are uh, still undetermined here. Uh, In fact, we don't even know how old these uh, teenagers were. Were they 16? Were they 18? Uh, But we do know, again, it appears as if this was a uh, self-defense shooting in Escambia County, Florida. We'll keep our eyes on any more details uh, as they become available. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. We just had that court decision in Florida last week where a judge said, I- I'm bound by 11th Circuit precedent here uh, in upholding this law, banning 18, 19, and 20-year-olds from legally purchasing a firearm. I-, I-, I think that there's a real open question as to whether or not that's constitutional, but the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has said that it is, so I have to follow their precedent. And here we have a case of uh, somebody under the age of 21 uh, using a firearm, uh, according to authorities, uh, to save his life and the life of another. All right, on to uh, today's good deed of the day from uh, Salem, New Hampshire. That's where we, well, we started our show in New Hampshire. I guess we'll end our show in New Hampshire as well. Where a, a good Samaritan in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to save the life of a young girl after a car crash. Scott Demers said uh, he didn't have time to panic when a car came barreling through a home with kids inside. He said it was like a war zone. It was chaos everywhere. Now, Demers has no official medical training, uh, but he still leapt into action. He saw a five-year-old girl severely injured, bleeding, uh, and in need of help, 
he jumped in. He was actually a couple of doors down fixing uh, some outside sprinklers when he heard the impact of this car hitting this home. Uh, he said the father came out of the house screaming that he had just killed my little girl. I saw blood squirting out of her neck, so I knew that she was still with us. Uh, that little girl's father, Joseph Tutrone, uh, said those who responded to his cries to help, they were the ones who saved your life. He said, I was a complete panic. I didn't know what to do. The five-year-old, uh, who again was, uh, it sounds like, inside the home and not in the vehicle, uh, has a broken jaw, several facial cuts, but is expected to make a full recovery thanks to the quick thinking and quick actions of Mr. Deemers here. He says, uh, I don't have the most inviting appearance sometimes. Heroes don't always wear capes. Mr. Deemers looks kind of like me. He's got uh, the big bushy beard and he's got better hair than I do. But uh, I will say this, Scott Deemers, not all heroes wear capes, man. Sometimes they just have a, a big old hair curtain hanging off their chin. And you, sir... In the right place, at the right time, willing able to do the right thing, are absolutely a hero. And we thank you for your very good deed. Now, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. want to thank you for being with us. As always, don't forget, you can become a VIP subscriber to Bearing Arms. All you have to do is go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNS. Get 25% off of your VIP membership. It'll give you exclusive analysis, commentary, and more. You'll also get a chance to support programs like this each and every day. Bringing you the latest Second Amendment news and information. Hope you have a fantastic weekend. We'll be back on Monday with even more of the latest Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free. Hey!